and welcome to episode 113 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. I'm Peter Alegi. And I'm Peter Lim. And joining us from London today is Dr. Karen Weitzberg. She earned her PhD at Stanford University, was a University of Pennsylvania visiting professor, and is now a teaching fellow at the Institute of Advanced Studies and the Department of History, University College London. Dr. Weitzberg has published in the Journal of African History and Northeast African Studies, and now has a new book titled, We Do Not Have Borders, Greater Somalia and the Predicaments of Belonging in Kenya, out with Ohio University Press in their prestigious New African Histories series. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to, to be here. So how did you become an historian of East Africa? Well, I got interested in uh, East Africa actually as an undergraduate. And um, particularly when I went to graduate school, I, I had then the first opportunity to actually travel to East Africa and to go to Nairobi, which I just immediately fell in love with. Um, and Nairobi can certainly be a, a bit of a tough city, but it's also in my mind a really amazing city, very cosmopolitan, and has a fascinating history. So for me, um, African history and also the history in particular of East Africa, just what it was very important to me to kind of situate African history within global history and show its significance to understanding the world at large. Fascinating new book uh, has a very interesting title, We Do Not Have Borders. And there has been of late a revival in border studies um, and I also think you're contributing to a forthcoming American Historical Review debate on walls, boundaries, and borders. And we look forward to that as well. Thank um, you. But the very title of your book throws out a challenge, I think, to old and perhaps new ideas on borders. You show the, the deep history of pastoralist mobility, the movements of Somalia across borders, how colonial and post-colonial officials alike seemed obsessed with borders as what they saw as solutions uh, to their fears of pastoralists. So what did Somali people think of, about borders and how did they act around them? And maybe as a follow-up question there, what's your take on how borders fit in Africa today? Yeah, well, um, I really, my book really examines two populations. So one are uh, nomadic pastoralists um, who live in northern Kenya and who have historically raised livestock and moved long distances and moved across the international frontiers between what is today Kenya, Ethiopia, and Italian Somaliland. And those borders have been and continue to be very porous. And I also look at um, Somali migrants who actually came to Kenya as early as the late 19th century um, and over subsequent waves. And most of them came from port cities in the northern horn of Africa, especially around the Gulf of Aden. And what I show in my book is that these populations were part of networks and imagined communities that really stretched across Northeast Africa. And as you mentioned, that both colonial and post-colonial officials really struggled 
with how to govern these very mobile populations who didn't neatly fit into the categories of rule um, through which they governed their subjects and who didn't fit neatly into either colonial or post-colonial ideas of indigeneity. And a lot of my book is about is about examining the strategies by which these populations have transgressed borders and also examining how Somali and Northern Kenyan political thinkers have tried to actively rethink and in some cases amend colonial and national borders. And perhaps um, the best example of this is in the early 1960s, uh, the efforts ultimately unsuccessful to create a kind of greater Somali pan-nationalist nation state. And at the time I found this um, topic to be very relevant when I was doing my research, which was mainly between 2010 and 2011, but I, I find it to be even more timely today in today's political climate at a time when we're really seeing a kind of um, surge of migration worldwide and also um, a, real, a real tendency on the part of a lot of particularly Western nations to, to close their borders. And I think a lot of what my this case study shows is that um, when countries, when politicians attempt to shore up borders, they're often trying uh, to end and long-standing patterns of interaction that have occurred across those borders, and they're trying to, um, in many cases, suppress networks that, in some cases, cases long predate uh, the nation state itself. Um, so for me, studying the strategies of people who um, have historically crossed borders is quite important, particularly at this political moment. Um, I think in terms of, you know, thinking about African history more broadly, one of the ideas that I challenge a bit in my book, um, and I'm certainly not the only scholar to have said this, but is the idea of the arbitrary boundary. Um, I think there is a widespread tendency to see African borders as being, you know, uniquely flawed, arbitrary constructs which is on one hand very understandable because uh, after all, most African borders were drawn in the mid to late 19th century by colonial powers and Africans had very often very little say in them. But in many respects, um, I don't think that that's profoundly different from a lot of the world's borders. If you take, for example, the US-Mexican frontier, which mm. uh, was only drawn really in the mid 19th century and also cut across communities. Um, and so I, the other thing that I find a little worrisome about the idea of arbitrary borders is I think it kind of assumes as a corollary the idea of the natural border. And that sort of assumes that people are sort of naturally meant to live in ethnically homogenous spaces defined by, you know, neatly delineated territorial borders. And a lot of what I showed in my book is that's actually really not historically the case in Northeast Africa, that people have organized themselves in many different ways and in ways that often haven't been predicated on borders. So nation states in general dislike mobile people, be they nomads or pastoralists. Um, so when you spend in the book a lot of time on the post-colonial period, it's really interesting to see how the Kenyan state managed uh, people uh, going 
uh, across the border and also northern Kenyans uh, of Somali background. So how does um, the Kenyan post-colonial state compare with others in its treatment of people coming and going across the border? Uh, I'm thinking here, you know, perhaps of how Kurds are, are a big thorn in the side of many Middle Eastern states, perhaps, mm-hmm. um, but also perhaps Tuareg um, in West Africa, Maasai and elsewhere in East Africa, perhaps even refugee nations, uh, stateless nations like the Palestinians. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think that there's a lot of parallels that can be drawn from with the Kenyan Somali population and that of other populations that have both crossed and been crossed by borders. So whether that's uh, the Palestinian community, many of whom um, live in stateless conditions, um, the Kurdish community, the Tuareg of West Africa, also to give an example from the U.S., the um, Hispanic communities that cut across the U.S.-Mexican border, or the Jewish community, the Jewish diaspora of the early 20th century, or the Roma community, I could go on, but I think there's quite a few parallels that could be drawn. And I definitely think that, um, you know, nation states in general, they're not wary of all forms of mobility. Um, You know, certainly there are, you know, certain classes of people um, who can travel worldwide with relative freedom, but certain marginalized minority groups when they cross borders, they are perceived to be quite threatening to the state. And and they are often, and a lot of what my book examines is the parallels between border crossing and the development of nativist politics and fear of the stranger, who sometimes are, and in the case of the Kenyan Somalis, are actually people who have lived in the country for generations, in some cases since, you know, before Kenya was even a country. So I would say what makes perhaps Kenya a little bit unique is that um, they historically haven't been able to police these networks perhaps as well as other states that have more powerful bureaucracies and more, more of a powerful security apparatus. So that is also what has enabled, for example, you know, large influx of refugees to come in um, really since the late 80s, early 90s with the start of the Somali Civil War. I certainly believe that although this is a very localized study, that it does refract these larger issues and can speak to the predicaments faced by a lot of other communities. Yes, indeed. You do cover a lot of ground, I mean, empirically and theoretically. And, uh, and the landscape, of course, is, is, is amazing and uh, relatively uh, neglected uh, by scholars and politicians. You mentioned uh, nativism and such things, and you underline assertions by Somali that they are not migrants. Uh, mm-hmm. And you nicely, I think, problematize um, what you call exclusionary nationalism and reactionary nativism. And uh, it's clearly a complex assertion of identities. And uh, you talk about the complicated questions of belonging of trans-territorial peoples which is a nice way of putting it, I think. And um, looking at um, the colonial uh, period chapters, I was struck by uh, one of the gambits of uh, Somali people was to stress uh, initially or early on in the late 19th century, early 20th century, their non-nativeness. Mm-hmm. And later on, as, as you mentioned earlier, this greater Somalia gained uh, currency in the 50s and 60s. It seems to have lost uh, much of its earlier appeal and uh, anthropologist Gunter Schley speaks of the fading popularity of such identities. And I wonder if you could speak a little on the history 
of these shifting identities. I mean, how how these concepts arose and then fell away. In other words, the the question of where Somalis belonged. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and I definitely agree with Shlee that the, the the appeal of Greater Somalia is, is quite different today than it was just a few de- decades ago. I mean, a lot of what I examine is how Somalis have navigated a political climate that has gradually shifted from the colonial era when there was a very explicit racial hierarchy in place in which people deemed to be non-natives such as white settlers, as well as other communities, had greater rights than natives to a post-colonial situation where, to a certain extent, the opposite is true, where citizenship has shifted from being more of a right of non-natives to that of of being a right of people deemed to be natives. Um, So in the colonial era, what some of the the case studies that I examine um, have to do with the ways in which Somalis attempted to navigate the colonial racial hierarchy. And some did, in fact, try to petition for higher rights within the racial or- order, and um, even at a certain point claimed, for example, Arab or even Asiatic status um, as a way of better fitting into colonial racial categories. In the post-colonial era, however, um, really these strategies changed quite dramatically. And in the early 1960s, uh, like really before, I would say, the, the post-war era, there, there were the emergence of different African nationalist movements. And what you see happening is that there are these competing nationalist movements uh, that emerge in Northeast Africa. There are various uh, nationalist movements within Kenya, most of which see Somalis as one of many ethnic groups within a some kind of a multi-ethnic nation. And then there are many pan-Somali nationalists, some of whom actually advocate for incorporating predominantly Somali areas in places like the Ogaden of Ethiopia and in northern Kenya into a greater Somali nation state. Um, So Somalis actually, as well as a lot of northerners in general, because this, this vision of a greater Somalia was not just appealing to Somalis in Kenya, it was also appealing to a lot of nomadic pastoralists and Muslims in northern Kenya as well. But many of them essentially got caught between these competing nationalist campaigns. And there was um, a separatist movement in the early 1960s that was very brutally um, quashed by the Kenyan government, which did not want to cede any territory to Somalia. What we've seen more recently is that while in the early 1960s, certainly not all, but many Somalis didn't want to be incorporated into Kenya as disempowered minorities. Instead, they saw themselves as members of a pan-Somali nation state. Today, what you see is, and it's a bit of a generalization, but I think by and large it's true, is that many people are really desirous to be perceived and to be recognized as both Somali and Kenyan, and are really struggling to gain full citizenship rights as Kenyans, while still participating in an idea of greater Somalia, but in a much more deterritorialized way. So participating in larger Somali networks, but not necessarily wanting to be part of a distinct separate territorial state. Maybe this discussion of um, Somaliness uh, can bridge nicely to the way that the media 
tend to cover um, this topic and, and Somalis in general and, and the conflicts in the Horn in East Africa, sort of representations of Somalis in the media. You, I recently read a review you did of uh, Jeffrey Gettleman's uh, book titled uh, Love Africa uh, for the popular website Africa as a Country. And uh, you made some very good points in that review. For those who don't know, Jeffrey Gettleman was the East Africa uh, correspondent for the New York Times for almost a decade. Uh, and you noted that um, he often in his reporting and in his book uh, relies on many of the same tired recycled tropes, you say, that appear um, uh, in mass media, you know, modernity versus tradition, ethnic conflict, and what you would term, you know, Malthusian concerns with overgrazing and population growth and lots and lots of killing and death, and the more scandalous, the better, right? Mm -hmm. uh, one of my favorite quotes from your piece was that he, Gettleman is the journalistic equivalent of an ambulance chaser. Uh, that was spot on. Um, so to what extent then do you think this kind of uh, uh, under-theorized and poorly contextualized reporting that, that becomes uh, widely read in the West, uh, how do you, to what extent do you think this is typical of Western media correspondence coverage of Somalia and, and Somalis in general? How, how do these ideas then also percolate to, you know, into the State Department and into official discourses and, and perhaps uh, beyond? Yeah, I think Gettleman is a bit of an extreme example. And, and to be fair to the New York Times, you know, they've had in the past better correspondents who covered Afro. So I think the best example, the example are being uh, Howard French in the 90s sure. in West Africa. Okay. I think that Somalia, unfortunately, is one of the most poorly represented uh, parts of the continent in the Western media. And to be very clear, there are many Somali scholars and Somali activists who are actively trying to counter these, you know, stereotypical perceptions of Somalia in the media. So people like Abdi Samatar, who I, I know you've had on the show, Awo Abdi, who's just wrote a a wonderful book called Elusive Jana. Um, there's Sophia Aydin, who's a Harvard PhD student who started a podcast called Mendak. And so there already are, you know, quite a few efforts on the part of a lot of small scholars to try to counteract these perceptions. But unfortunately, they are quite pervasive. And I think there's just a, a widespread tendency to constantly be defining Somalis and Somalia in terms of lack. Um, and in terms of a set of very simplistic tropes, so I, whether that's the failed state or to harp on, um, you, know, in, you know, very sort of exotic cases of um, death or to, to focus on things like piracy and terrorism that kind of um, just appeals to a certain kind of Western imagination. And there's, unfortunately, hasn't been a great deal of nuance um, in the ways in which uh, what is really a very, very complex uh, political situation that has played out really since um, the early 90s. Um, so, I, and I definitely think that ends up having policy ramifications in a number of ways. And Certainly, there has been quite a bit of American intervention in the region, which actually most American citizens don't aren't even aware of, that has gone far beyond just the, the Black Hawk Down incident, and that continues to this day. So I think it's, it's quite important to continue writing and supporting the scholarship uh, of people who are trying to provide more careful and more nuanced understandings of the region. 
still on stereotypes, but maybe refocusing more inside the country of Kenya and perhaps teasing out rural-urban dimensions. Can you tell us about the current state of relations between, on the one hand, Kenyan Somali and other Kenyans, and also between town and country Somali, Mm. even with recent Somali refugees? I mean, if we go back in time to the colonial period, you write that many colonial officials came to see pastoralists as, quote, inherently irrational, damaging to rangelands, and tried to regulate their movement and confine them to ethnic homelands. Uh, unquote, and some might uh, impishly ask here how much has uh, really changed since political mm-hmm. independence. Yeah, there, um, there certainly is a, a very widespread perceptions um, within Kenya that Somalis are foreign to the nation and that uh, Somar- the Somali language, Somali culture is not, is foreign, is not part of what makes Kenya, Kenya. Um, and interestingly enough, the, you know, I, these perceptions aren't just confined to Kenya. Um, what's been really interesting in terms of the initial perception of people to my book is a lot of people actually just assume, looking at the title or reading a blurb about my book, that my book is about refugees. So there is just this very pervasive assumption that um, Somalis are relatively recent arrivals to the country. And in terms of the Kenyan state itself, while things have improved quite a bit in recent decades, there have been a number of examples of state violence directed against the Kenyan Somali people um, during the 1960s, during a period of time that is often known as the shift of war period, as well as after. I mean, there have been really um, egregious acts of violence, one of which is the Wagala massacre. Um, Salah Abdi Sheikh has a, a really wonderful and then sad book about that topic called Blood on the Runway. So um, unfortunately, Somalis have faced quite a bit of state violence, um, as well as just uh, racial and ethnic profiling, particularly since the start of the Somali civil war and the refugee crisis. That being said, the political situation has improved in some ways uh, in recent decades. Um, in terms of kind of tensions within the Somali community, I mean, I think like any population, there are tensions that fracture around class, geography, ideological background, in this case also clan, and certainly the people who live in northern Kenya are living in, you know, very a very politically and economic economically marginalized region, and they're living very different lives in many cases than those who are living in urban areas um, or have grown up in urban areas. So there certainly can be tensions, political tensions that emerge between these two groups, and also tensions that can emerge between refugees and citizens. I think as a lot of Kenyan Somalis seek out citizenship rights and seek seek to be recognized as full-fledged Kenyans, there is sometimes a desire to then distance themselves from refugees. So while I don't want to overemphasize these tensions, because there's also quite a bit of collaboration and you know, interaction between, you know, these different subsets of the community, there certainly can be tensions um, that are brought out, particularly, for example, during times of elections, um, that it, it is important to kind of be aware of these internal dynamics. 
perhaps uh, to shift the discussion and, and move it towards uh, a conclusion, I uh, wanted to bring in the your handling of oral sources and the issue of women and, and gender relations in particular in your story, because it's very much a male uh, narrative that uh, emerges from from your book, and, and you explain very well why it, it is so. But uh, maybe this would be a, a good opportunity to um, talk about how your oral informants really showed that Somali women did play important roles and that, for example, their mobility often went unrecorded in the archives. Um, and also, you know, that women could keep stock of Somali men ejected from the colony and, and, and so on and so forth. Can you tell us more about this hidden history of women and what you were able to squeeze out from poetry and the mm -hmm. oral interviews, perhaps? Yeah, I, I definitely, um, you know, I think like a lot of people who examine, a lot of historians who examine the archives um, uh, had difficulty accessing women's voices within the archives. And unfortunately, that was also the case uh, when doing oral histories, uh, where um, I often found myself talking to men, and men were often the public face of the community, and especially to outsiders. I don't think this is necessarily particular to Kenya or to the Somali community. I think it's often the case that um, men end up being the, the kind of public faces of a community. And what I also discovered was that I had to change some of my own methodology and I had to be a little more creative in how I approached women and the kind of questions that I asked them. Um, and what I often found was that one way of kind of accessing women's experiences and women's narratives was through poetry. Certainly many poems were written by men and were authored by men, but in many cases women would recite them and they would make small alterations to them. And in other cases, women were authors of poems. And, um, you know, one particular set of poetry that I collected in the small town of Kutulo was by a female poet who had lived through the shift of war, the, the separatist movement in the 1960s. And it gave me, I mean, these were just fantastic poems. And, and by the way, I would not have been able to collect them were it not for my research assistant, Abdi Bilo, who really helped me tremendously. And, you know, was really attentive to these questions of getting at female voices. So he helped, you know, actually track down these, these people who could recite her poems. And these poems really gave insight into kind of the internal tensions within um, the pan-Somali movement and how some of the the fighters who were fighting to join Somalia, in part because they were under-equipped by the Somali government, they began to raid the households of locals. This is a little bit of a contentious topic, but women were often um, victims of this. And so there's these, you know, wonderful poems that I was able to collect that, um, you know, showcased the tension how this woman was essentially caught between, on one hand, the Kenyan government, and on the other hand, um, these Somali fighters who were demanding that she give them food and kind of overstepping the bounds of hospitality. And so this was like 
these beautiful poems that really were aimed at publicly shaming these um, fighters who she felt were taking advantage of her. So I, I really found that with a little, you know, I got certainly got a lot better over time as I confronted these issues, but that with a little bit of creativity and looking for non-traditional sources, you could access these kind of hidden um, narratives of women um, who often very much get neglected. Well, for a neglected uh, area uh, that is often uh, uh, not left to much of an archival trace, there's an awful lot of history, politics and culture in northern Kenya. Yes. Uh, thank you very much for speaking with Africa past and present. And thank you uh, both so much for having me. I've really enjoyed this. Africa Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Digital Humanities and Social Sciences, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix Digital Media Lab. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit our website at afropod.aodl.org. The podcast is also available on iTunes. You can also send us email at africa.podcast.com at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.